Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Um, hello, my name is uh, Troy Hoffsell, and I'm your host on New Books in the American West, the channel of the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Mark Johnson. He's an associate professor in the Institute of Educational Initiatives at the University of Notre Dame. And today we're st- discussing his new book, The Middle Kingdom Under the Big Sky, A History of the Chinese Experience in Montana, published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2022. From the earliest days of non-native settlement of Montana, when Chinese immigrants made up more than 10% of the territory's population, Chinese pioneers played a role in the region's development. But this population, so crucial to Montana's history, remains underrepresented, um, excuse me, underrepresented um, in historical accounts, and popular attention to the Chinese of Montana tends to focus on sensational elements, you know, exoticizing uh, Chinese Montanans and distancing their lived experiences from our modern understanding. Middle Kingdom Under the Big Sky seeks to recover the stories of Montana's Chinese population in their own words and deepen under and deepen our understanding of Chinese experiences in Montana by using a global lens. Johnson's mined several large collections of primary documents left by Chinese pioneers translated into English here for the very first time. These collections, spanning the 1880s to the 1950s, provide insight into the pressures the Chinese community faced uh, from family members back in China and from non-Chinese Montanans. As economic and cultural disturbances complicated acceptance of Chinese residents in the state, um, through their own voices, Johnson reveals the agency of Chinese Montanans, Chinese Montanans in the history of the American West and China. Mark, thanks for speaking with me today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Troy. I'm a big fan of the New Books Network. I'm happy to be featured on this. Good, good, good. Anything to get Montana out there is what makes me happy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so um, kind of always like to start off our uh, my podcast with this one is, how did you come to write this book? Well, I think that might take us the next hour, to be honest with you. Uh, so I'm a Montana, I'm born and raised in Great Falls, Montana, your hometown now. And I grew up loving history and came to Helena and Carroll College and was a history major there, uh, studying to be a K-12 teacher. And during my major in history there at Carroll College, I worked with a gentleman named Dr. Robert Swartout, who had done a lot of work on Asian history globally, a lot of work on Asian American history, and specifically the Chinese experience in Montana. He did an article on that topic in about 1988. So I was somewhat aware that Montana had this history and that something had been done on it. And Dr. Swartout's work was was really foundational, looking at tax records, census records, push-pull effects of migration that brought the Chinese population to Montana. He did a great job on that. And then I went off to, to be a K-12 teacher, high school history and English teacher for about 15 years, taught in Boston, taught in Seattle. But my last posting was in Shanghai, China. My wife and I wanted to see the world, get some international experience. So we were spending each academic year in Shanghai, but then we were spending our summers back here in Montana. And during that time period, I was teaching at this wonderful international school called Concordia International School, Shanghai, had students from around the world. I was teaching world history, Chinese history, American history, American literature, world literature, everything. And I would spend my summers here in Montana 
And I would always try to come up with new ways to teach the history that I was about to teach that next year. So I went to the Montana Historical Society at one point in time and was digging around and asking questions about what they knew about the Chinese presence in Montana, since I was teaching mostly Asian, Asian American students over in Shanghai. And through the the combined efforts of the Montana Historical Society research team and my work there, we came across a couple of doc, uh, large boxes of documents, all in Chinese that had never been translated before. And I was very excited about this find and thought that we might be able to tell a new version of the, the Chinese experience in Montana and the Rocky Mountain West, if only we could translate these documents. And I, I thought to myself, I talked to the researchers and said, you know, have you ever had these translated? And they said, well, we, we've tried a couple of times with a little bit in the late 80s when these documents were transferred from Butte up to Helena. They did ask a linguist with the University of Montana to help translate these documents. And he looked at them and he he came to the conclusion that they dealt with family affairs and they were of no historical importance. And uh, the long long story is, is as we got these documents translated, and that's a, a whole story in itself, he was right about the first part. They did deal with family affairs. I think he was wrong about the second part. I do think they are of historical importance. They really testify to the pressures that Chinese workers were under here in Montana, their experiences and family connections back in southern China, their hopes, their goals, their dreams. And through a long process, we were able to actually translate these two large collections of documents, uh, largely through the, the language abilities of my students in Shanghai, their families. We wrote grants. So I had high school students coming here to Helena, Montana to help translate these. I had groups of grandparents working back in Shanghai to translate these. So it was a really wonderful transnational intergenerational translation project. The documents that we translated, there are two large collections, one from the period of 1880 to 1920, about one gentleman who was working in Butte, likely as a laundry worker. And by definition, these are letters from Southern China to this person working in Butte, Montana, and they testify to the, the pressures he was under. And so that was interesting to look into that time period. That's a pretty traditional time period of the Chinese experience in the West. The second collection of letters was a little bit outside of the normal telling of the, the time period. It was 1930s to 1950s. It really spoke to the Second World War, to the Cold War, and changing pressures on the Chinese community. So with my role as a Montanan teaching in China and having connections to those families, that's how we were able to tell this story through the words of the Chinese Montanans and their families, really, I think, for the first time for this community and hopefully bring light to their experiences through their own words and their own cultural perspectives. So we found those documents in 2010, brought the group of researchers over in 2012, 2014, and then just continued to work on trying to tell this story of Montana's Chinese population in their own words, or at least through their own cultural perspective and through a global lens. And so that's kind of the nutshell of this project. Thanks. Thanks for that. Um, And you you already kind of answered the second question about the sources. Um, One thing I remember, and I don't know if you might be able to uh, elaborate on a little bit, but I remember, um, I think it was an introduction or in the first chapter, but was it, was it the, the form of uh, manner that it was written in? Wasn't it kind of like a, a form that is no longer spoken, you know, today? And in, 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 do I remember that correctly, that you actually had to do, it was even a little bit more difficult than just going, hey, someone, we need to get people to translate. I don't know if you could talk about that just a little bit. Sure, sure. So when we first found these documents, I was very excited and I, I photographed several of them. I sent them back to my Mandarin teachers in Shanghai and ho- thought that, you know, this would be an easy lift and they'd be able to translate these letters. They were only able to read about 30% of these letters written in the 1880s and 1890s. And that's for a couple of reasons. One is the calligraphy is simply uh, a more classical style and it was difficult to read. And secondly, to your point, the changing language, the changing style of written Chinese uh, language changed in the 1940s and 1950s with the ascent of the communists in an attempt to try and spread literacy across the country, the, the language, the written form was simplified. And so for most mainland Chinese people today, they read and write in the simplified form of writing, but these letters were written in the traditional form of writing. And so I needed people who had access to that older, more traditional form of, of writing the Chinese language. And that was either people of a certain generation. And so that's where grandmas and grandpas came in or people from Taiwan and Hong Kong. 
specifically Taiwan, with the end of the Chinese Civil War and the nationalists moving to Taiwan, they kept the traditional form of writing alive, whereas on the mainland, under the communists, the form of writing had been simplified. So you're absolutely right. It's not enough to just know how to read and write Chinese script to be able to translate these letters. We needed a very specific form of the language. And so that's the written form of it. Most of the speakers of Chinese who I was dealing with in this project then verbalized it into Mandarin, spoken Mandarin Chinese. And that gets a little bit complicated as well, because these Chinese Montanans, there's no way that they spoke Mandarin. They probably spoke Cantonese or even a further down uh, version of the language called Taishanese. And so that's been a difficult aspect to, to try and figure out how would the people we are researching, how would they have actually verbalized their name? It would not have been in the way that my Mandarin speaking translation team verbalized the traditional form of writing that they they had. So you're right. It's, it was quite complicated, took a long time. It was fun though, to see the grandmas and grandpas and people from around the world be able to weighed in on this, bring their cultural heritage, their cultural traditions, and even, like I said, the older generation to teach the younger generation some of the nuances of the language and how it's changed. You know, it's interesting dealing with, um, you know, Montana's just such a large immigrant population, you know, Chinese immigrants aside. So, you know, here around Great Falls, you have Irish, you have Italians, you have Welsh, you have Finnish, uh, Norwegians and stuff like that. And, and I forget exactly where it was. I was I, th- I was when I first moved here, I was trying to come up with a project, and I was kind of looking at Black Eagle, and I knew that they had an Italian population that produced community news newsletters, and I was like, that'd be great if I could get my hands on them. Then I pause and I go, I don't, I don't speak Italian, let alone Italian from you know the turn of the century. You know what I mean? And so it's it's interesting that I guess in a sense I'm not surprised by the linguistic barrier that you faced. But anybody who's looking at that, I remember reading an article that came out, uh, might have been a year or two ago, looking at uh, Cornish miners in Butte. And you had to have a person that was from, you know, was from the United Kingdom and, and could find people that could either he himself spoke or locate folks. And it just the more and more I see that, the more and more I realize it's much more difficult to try to get into those different different you know, early 20th century kind of just ethnic groups and tell their very specific stories because of such language barriers that exist in, the, in all the written documents that they produce. And so I'm, I'm glad I say all that to say, I'm glad that you, you took the time and expended the energy to, to, to find folks who could do this and then create the book that you, that you did. Yeah. And, and as we dove into the archives, I still, I still talk about it as, as we, you know, after a while, it, it just became me um, based building upon the translation work that the team had done for two very specific chapters in the book. But then what I found is every time I would dive into the archives, I didn't think there was a book in this at the beginning of this. I was still just a high school teacher trying to do interesting things with my school community. But every time I would dive into the the archives and kind of return to these sources, something new would bubble to the surface that seemed unmined, untold, uh, that seemed like an aside to this story that then took years to unravel. So chapter four with the Chinese Empire Reform Association, this fascinating transnational uh, activist movement that had important roots in Montana, that bubbled to the surface and it took several years to make sense of that or this 1905 special census that was a a government roundup of the Chinese in Montana and Idaho, that bubbled to the surface and took several years to to kind of make sense of. So I didn't go in with this, with the, the book in mind, but then over the years, enough sources rose that I realized we could tell this story again through their own words or cultural perspective, and then through a global lens. And, and, and that was the thing too. And I'll kind of last comment before we kind of I get you to talk about just kind of walk us through the book. Is when I first picked up your book, right? So I'm looking at the title, right? You know, the subtitle: History of the Chinese Experience in Montana. And what I expected to read. And, it does, and your book does do this, is kind of more of that, that classical kind of social history, right? So, you know, you know, here, here's what it looks like demographically in Montana, chapter one. Then, okay, what's it like for labor? What's it like for religion? What's it like for, you know, gender stuff, you know, and, and race issues and stuff like that? And while that's in there, the, the thing that kind of – that I didn't expect was both – initially, I should have been like, well, no, duh, it, it's a – these are these – are, folks who are immigrating to Montana. So there's an immigration store. I've read enough immigration history to know that that's, I should have expected that. But the other thing that kind of surprised me was actually how kind of political the story was. 
because you are dealing with stuff at the federal level with um, immigration and then how that kind of, you know, that those sentiments work their way down to the, the streets of Butte. Um, and that was also something I didn't anticipate. And, and, and I think my, actually my favorite chapter, at least for me, the most revealing was the one about the Chinese Reform Association and kind of the push and the pull of the politics across the Pacific Ocean. Um, so so I, I was quite impressed by uh, by that uh, kind of telling of the story. So good job on that one. Um, so, OK, so let's just kind of work, work through some of these chapters here. So can you kind of kind of start at the beginning, right, and lay the foundation of what Montana's Chinese population kind of looked like, you know, you know, what did they experience when they showed up in Butte or they showed up in, in some other mining town or, or any town for that matter throughout Montana, and then we'll just kind of uh, kind of work our way through the different chapters there. Yeah, and, and you know, you mentioned any town throughout Montana. I've got a map where I tried to look at where the Chinese were across the state, um, and you're new adopted hometown of Great Falls, you say any town across Montana, that was the one town that they were exempted from, excluded from, and forcefully expelled from. So there's an interesting story that I'm going to tell later on in, in a next project. But in terms of why they came, it was definitely a push-pull factor of things. You know, gold mining was definitely big in Montana in the 1860s. And so these Chinese miners who came in the 1860s had probably mined in California, had probably mined in Colorado, Nevada, or Idaho, following those precious metal strikes, got here to Montana and tried to do the same thing. And then in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, they were definitely working in railroad work. I didn't focus a lot on mining and railroad work because I feel like that story has been told pretty extensively. So I tried to kind of take it in a couple of different directions. And because after the completion of the railroad and after, uh, you know, the Chinese were pushed out of gold mining, they didn't work in those industries as much here in Montana. So they definitely were in laundry work, restaurant work, gardening, merchants. And so I tried to look at those occupations a little bit more. But in terms of the population, at the first counting of the non-native population of Montana with the territorial census in 1870, there's almost 2,000 Chinese here in Montana territory, and that made up about 10, maybe even a little bit higher percent of Montana's non-native population. So a significant number. My hometown now of, of Helena, Montana in 1870 was almost 21% Chinese. So a very important group early on. The population peaked in 1890 at 2,532 and then declined pretty rapidly after that for a number of reasons. A lot of times people will say, in, a, in kind of a passive sense that the Chinese were here and then and then they, they went away, you know, they went back home and it was unfortunately a lot more active than that. There were deportations, arrests, rousts, harassment. Thankfully in Montana, there was no large outscale uh, uh, or out, outburst of violence against the Chinese in Montana like there had been in Wyoming on the border of Oregon and Idaho or over in Washington or California. I'm not saying that the Chinese in Montana had it good, but there was not one or a series of instances of bloodshed against the, the population here. Largely, it was a male population. You know, the, the stats on the Chinese women who came here in 1870, about 14 percent. By 1900, I'm sorry, about 14 to 1 Chinese men for Chinese women. By 1900, that ratio had widened to 40 Chinese men for every one Chinese woman. And there were a number of reasons for that. Um, the sending culture, Chinese culture did not prompt women to go out for work as much as it did for men. But really, it was more American laws, the Page Act of 1875, trying to restrict Chinese women from coming in. So it was very difficult for Chinese women to come in and then very difficult for Chinese families to become Chinese American families by being born here on American soil. So in 1870, uh, you know, the population about 10%. And I thought I'd, I'd maybe mine those census records to find out more of what I could find out about the Chinese who were here in 1870. You know, we hope to find age, occupation, location, when they came in, hopefully name. But the census enumerators in 1870 largely did not record names of Chinese. And so instead, the 1870 census is filled with quote, China man, quote, China woman, quote, China boy, seemingly distancing our understanding of their true identity and uh, possibly a lost opportunity there. But then as we went through the records more and more, we were able to reconstruct to a large degree their identities, give them back their identity, see them as, you know, capable, active, empowered people rather than the anonymous China man or China woman from that 1870 census. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and it's, it's, it's interesting when... Because I find myself, I've tried to 
use those census records to track people down. And, and it's, <laughs> I, I commend the, the, the painstaking nature in which you, which you did that, right? Is because especially if they're, if they're just listed as quote unquote, China man versus whatever uh, his name might've actually been. Um, but, but, you know, it, it, but it's still one of those things that oftentimes when that's the only record available, that's the only record that's available. Right. And so, you know, what kind of picture you're able to, to reconstruct from, you know, male, 40 year old, 40 years old, question mark, you know, mer- merchant, you know what I mean? And just trying to build, build out from there. Um, and if I could jump in on that point, I think what often for the Chinese story in Montana and across the West, what often then fills that gap that you just mentioned is exoticization, is myth making, is titillating stories of opium dens, prostitution, tong wars, um, that that the reading public today really seems excited by, but I think distances us from a, 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 a dignity infused reading of the men and women who came here and helped, you know, make this, this West. And so I tried to cut through those, those layers of exoticization. I tried to resist uh, the, the oft told stories of supposed Chinese tunnels here and there and, and things like that, and try to really see their, their personhood and give that back to them through yeah. this study. And that kind of exotization too. I mean, I even see that as you were talking, I was, I'm sitting here watching the, was it the last most recent season of Peaky Blinders on Netflix? I don't know if you ever watched it, but in this whole season, you got, uh, the Tommy Shelby's older brother, um, becomes addicted to opium. And so the only time you see in that story, right. Um, someone, uh, who'd been a Chinese immigrant to, in this case, uh, the United Kingdom, it's around, it's around an opium den, right? And so as you're saying that, I'm kind of like, oh, wow, that is the image that pops up, which whether it's factually true or not, it's much more complicated than that's the business, the only types of business that those folks might have, uh, have operated back at that time period. Um, well, so, so, okay. Yeah. yeah. So what's well, my train of thing? I'm sorry. Um, yeah, so let's kind of look at a couple of kind of the key things because you talked about, you know, that 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 gap, you know, 14 to 1 to the up to 40 to 1 ratios, right? So you're looking at immigration stuff. Um, can you talk about the Geary Act, uh, what, what that was, uh, what it did, and then also kind of how did Montana's uh, Chinese, you know, residents respond to it? Sure. Many, many listeners will be familiar with the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, you know, and, and what its intent was to, to, to prohibit Chinese workers from coming in and competing with, quote, American labor. In 1892, the Chinese Exclusion Act had, had run its 10-year course, and it was reasserted and strengthened through the 1892 Gary Act. And this was giving more teeth to the Chinese Exclusion Act. It narrowed the group of exempt people who could come in. So it narrowed the definition of who merchants were, who were still exempt under these exclusion laws and should be able to come in. But it narrowed the categories of, of uh, the, that exempt group. It also very much transitioned that aggressive action against Chinese from the ports and borders where they might be seeking to immigrate. And it extended it to the interior. And so even if Chinese workers had gotten in legally, had been in here before 1882, maybe they'd come with the 1868 Burlingame Act to build railroads, they had, they had entered America legally. Um, by 1892, the Gary Act was, was trying to extend that aggressive action against Chinese everywhere they were found. And so it was going to require a certificate. They were, it was going to require the Chinese in America, if they weren't in the exempt status, to register with government officials, carry a certificate with them for all intents and purposes at all time. It had to be on their person at all time and to be photographed on this certificate. Before this time period, the only people who were forced to be photographed in this way were criminals. And so in essence, it criminalized the very fact of being ethnically Chinese and in the United States. And so the Chinese across the nation, not just in Montana, but definitely in Montana as well, fought against this 1892 Gary Act through strategic noncompliance. And so with some leadership from the Chinese six companies out of San Francisco, Chinese across the nation said, we're not going to register for this. They were supposed to have registered by 1892. Across Montana, there were government officials who had offices waiting to register Chinese, waiting to issue these certificates. And they found themselves twiddling their thumbs because Chinese Montanans did not come in to register. Now, the Chinese six companies eventually fought the Gary Act. 
legally. They they issued a test case, Fang Wei Ting uh, versus United States in 1893. They lost that. They fought it on grounds of Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Sixth Amendment, uh, Eighth Amendment. And ultimately, the Supreme Court said, no, the Gary Act was indeed constitutional and needed to go into, into enactment. So few Chinese had registered, though, what were they going to do? They had already broken this law. And so there was an amendment that was issued called the McCrary Amendment that was to go into effect May 4th, 1894. And so then, again, government officials spread out to their offices, waited for the Chinese to come in, spread word to Chinese communities. And in Montana, they still strategically refused to comply. And there's activism in that. There's agency in in that. There's choice in that of standing up against this law that they thought was unjust, that they thought was an overreach of governmental power, and they thought was racially motivated, which I think we all, from a modern reading of it, understand that it was. And then by May 4th, 1894, if they hadn't registered, they'd be expelled, they'd be arrested and deported. And a document that I found that I was working with from much later, from 1905, really cracked into this case, that it was a a census roundup of 1905, and they were looking at when the Chinese had registered, what the certificate number was, where they were, and things like that. And as I broke apart the 1,336 names on this special census roundup, I found it was interesting, the stats were interesting, in terms of when they registered for the Gary Act. 40% of them waited until the last month, 28% of them waited to the last week, and even the last day before they were forced to register. They eventually did register, but there's empowerment, there's agency, there's activism, there's choice, there's strength in that strategic non-compliance to the Gary Act, and then it's McCrary Amendment. So that was, uh, unfortunately for Montana's Chinese, when the McCrary Amendment and the Gary Act were eventually rigorously enforced, that caused arrests and deportations that declined the, the Chinese population of Montana by about 30%. So it was a very serious blow to Montana's Chinese communities. Wow. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, no, that, that, that was one of the things I enjoyed was that you talk about that strategic noncompliance is that we are going to uh, wait, we are not going to, you know, kind of, you know, we'll test your will, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And 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 so that was, that was part of the story I enjoyed. Um so moving forward a little bit, um, and then I, I think to at least what I thought was the most interesting chapter was your one on the Chinese uh, Empire Reform Association. So can you talk about that association, kind of what led to its creation, but then also its role um, uh, with uh, Montana's uh, Chinese residents? Yeah, this uh, this was a chapter that I worked on very early in this project, even before I saw this as a, as a book possibility. and. Uh, to understand the Chinese Empire Reform Association, you're not, you're not just talking about the Chinese in America, North America, we need to understand Chinese politics. And so China throughout the mid and late 19th century had been in decline, had been severely weakened by natural disasters, by inept leadership, by you know defeats against the Japanese. And that was under the leadership of the Dowager Empress. And in the 1890s, she began to recede into retirement, allowing the true emperor, the Guangxu emperor, to rise up and take the throne. Now, his ear had been captured by a couple of um, Western-minded, reform-minded, modern uh, technology-based reformers who wanted to see China move in a more Western, modern direction. They thought that the outmoded uh, approach that the Dowager Empress had had been using had weakened China. And so these reformers, led by Kang Youwei and his key student, Liang Qichao, and about 10 others, got, again, the attention of the Guangxu Emperor and said, we need to move forward, we need to westernize, we need to modernize, we need to learn from the West in terms of education, legal systems, military technologies, if we are going to compete in the modern world. Much like Japan had done with the Meiji Restoration, they thought that China needed a similar modernization effort. And so he actually does follow their their advice, these reformers led by Kang Youwei, and the Guangxu Emperor starts what's called the 100 Days of Reform. Unfortunately, the name kind of gives away how long it lasted. It didn't go very well because the Dowager Empress did not like this. And her advisors came back out of retirement, instituted a coup, 
arrested and put the true emperor under house arrest where he would remain until his death. Uh, but they also wanted to decapitate this reform movement. And so the Dowager Empress and her minions tried to capture and behead as many of the reformers as they could. And they were successful to a great degree. Two escaped. Kong Yo Wei and Liang Chi Chao escaped and lived in exile. But they didn't just live passively. They sought to put the true emperor, the Guangxu emperor, who'd been put under house arrest, back on the throne. And this is the Chinese Empire Reform Association. So they're looking for a constitutional monarchy, looking for westernization, modernization. But they have to try and do this from exile. If they go back to China, they're going to be captured and, and bad things will happen to them. And so they start that in Victoria, British Columbia, but then they begin spreading out to anywhere where there's Chinese communities overseas. So there's branches of the Chinese Empire Reform Association, of course, in New York, in San Francisco, in Seattle, in Mexico, in Canada, in Burma, in Australia, Singapore, Japan. And my research tells me that the greatest critical mass of branches was actually right here in Montana. As many as 12 branches of the Chinese Empire Reform Association took hold in Montana. And those two exiled reformers, some of the most brilliant Confucian scholars in all of Chinese history, visited Montana's branches. So Kang Yo Wei comes through and visits the Chinese in Livingston and Helena in Butte. Liang Chi Chao, again, a brilliant Confucian scholar, comes through and he's rubbing elbows with laundry workers from Butte and restaurant workers from Helena. And so you've got these exceedingly bright, capable connected Confucian scholars, reformers, activists, now intermingling with Montana's Chinese. And what they find in Montana's Chinese communities is, is a group of Chinese who are motivated, capable, who have exactly the technological skills that would help move China forward in a, in a Western direction and possibly uh, allow uh, China to compete on the world stage. So that was a fascinating aspect, this Chinese Empire Reform Association. And to the point of the photographs that we mentioned earlier, with the Gary Act, those photographs that they had to keep on that certificate were, were much more of a mugshot, right? A government uh, issued photograph where they you know, very much posed how they how the government made them pose. And the, the crumb that started this investigation into the Chinese Empire Reform Association were these beautiful photo montages that we found from Marysville's Chinese community, from Butte, Montana's Chinese community. And they were posed in how the Chinese in Montana wanted themselves to be seen. And so they're proud. They've got the lapel pin of the Guangxu emperor. They've got some have American flags. Some are dressed in Western dress. Some have adopted a Western hairstyle. And so it was this moment of self-actualization of how they wanted themselves to be portrayed, how they began to see themselves as strong, empowered, connected, globally capable rather than that mugshot of the 1892 Gary Act. So th this comparison between these two photographs, I thought was an insightful moment to give some voice to these, these reformers. I had to follow up and then I lost it. Drat. Okay. All right. Never mind. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, we'll, we'll move on. So um, the anti-American boycott of 1905. So what was it? And then how did, um, I guess, what role did um, Montana's Chinese residents play in that uh, boycott? Yeah, so that that's, again, kind of tied up with what we've talked about before with the Gary Act and then this Chinese Empire Reform Association. So, you know, the Chinese back in, in mainland China were aware of the Exclusion Act and the harassment and the, the mistreatment of Chinese overseas. But honestly, China was in such a bad state in the 1890s, the Boxer Rebellion, late, late 1890s that they couldn't really focus too much on the status of overseas Chinese. Plus, it was a regional issue. The vast majority of the Chinese who came to America were from Guangdong province, and even more specifically, Taishan County in Guangdong province. And China did not have necessarily a unified national identity at this point in time. And so if you were from Shanghai or Beijing or other parts of China, you didn't worry too much about what Southerners were experiencing over in North America, let's say. But by the 1890s, early turn of the century, there began to be more of a unified Chinese national spirit through the efforts of the Chinese Empire Reform Association, through the efforts of Dr. Sun Yat-sen and others. And so it began to be the case that Chinese back home in mainland China began to see mistreatment of Chinese anywhere in the world as disrespect to Chinese everywhere. Now, they had fought against the Chinese Exclusion Act to try and on, on moral grounds, arguing that it was immoral and racist. That hadn't worked. They'd fought against Chinese exclusion in the Gary Act legally through the Supreme Court. That hadn't worked. So finally, the reformers and others began to think, well, what do Americans care about at this time period? Apparently money. 
And so they decided to fight against this Chinese exclusion, the mistreatment and the harassment through economic means. And so that gentleman, Kang Yo Wei, that I mentioned, who visited Helena Butte, led the Chinese Empire Reform Association, he was really a leading force with others at starting this boycott of American goods in 1905 to try and influence better treatment of Chinese at ports and borders, but also eventually even through uh, the interior of the United States. Now, the Chinese in Montana couldn't really take part in an anti-American boycott to boycott American goods, right? If you're a Chinese guy in Fort Benton, you kind of got to buy American goods. But Montana's Chinese were absolutely instrumental in this as well. Kong Yo Wei, when he first started this boycott, one of the other, one of the the leading forces behind it, really envisioned it more of for the elites so that Chinese diplomats trying to come in or merchants or students would not be mistreated. He didn't care too much early on about Chinese workers. But when he came through Montana, his his ideas changed. He began to gain sympathy with the Chinese workers in Montana, saw how strong they were, but also how put upon they were by this harassment, this mistreatment, these arrests and deportations. And then his tone changes. And so by January 1906, his tone had changed saying, you know, this Gary Act with its uh, rousts and deportations and arrests and this harassment that the workers are facing needs to be part of this anti-American boycott. He writes letters to President Theodore Roosevelt. He meets with Roosevelt a couple of times. Now, the goal ultimately was trying to rescind the Gary Act and the Chinese Exclusion Act. Of course, that didn't work. That wasn't ended until 1943. And so some people think that the 1905 anti-American boycott failed. But through Kang Youwei, through his alliances with the Chinese in Montana, the sympathy he gained with them and his relationship with Roosevelt, he actually did win quite a few concessions where Roosevelt began to see the mistreatment that Kong brought to his attention of Chinese at ports and borders. And so Roosevelt began to issue stronger statements about how to treat Chinese who were coming into the country. And he actually transferred the most stubborn and intransigent uh, immigration officials away from ports and borders where they would deal with Chinese. Deportations dropped dramatically after this this boycott. Um, refusals of Chinese immigrants at ports and borders dropped dramatically after this anti-American boycott. So it had a, a great impact. Interestingly, in a, a non-Chinese Montana sense, this is kind of how the economics worked, 1905 was an absolute bumper crop for Montana wheat. I know you're over in Great Falls and you can see those flowing fields of wheat. And so Montana farmers were thinking, this is great. We've got our best wheat crop ever. We're actively involved in the China market. This is going to be outstanding. And then when the boycott happened, Montana farmers began to get nervous. They really had no interactions with Chinese across, you know, or Chinese politics or Chinese in Montana, but they then began to put pressure on the administration saying, hey, we need this China market. Don't let this anti-American boycott stop our wheat from finding a buyer. Maybe we need to treat the Chinese with more respect in these uh, interactions they have with government officials. So that was a fascinating coming together of those Confucian reformers, plus economics, plus the agriculture of the region uh, to really try and fight this on economic grounds. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that was a fascinating part that it <laughs> should just, I mean, you're right, you know, it's, it's one of the, the answer to all your questions is money, you know, and, and, and for an effective boycott to actually force the federal government to, to uh, make some changes. Um, it, it was an impressive story to read. Um, okay, now we're going to get in a couple chapters that like, like, like I said earlier, this is kind of more of the story that I anticipated learning about. Um but how did uh, Montana's Chinese residents adapt their religious and burial practices to Montana? Because like you said, um, that relationship between kind of the elites back in China and then any, any Chinese abroad did not seem very, very tight. Right. So kind of, you know, yeah. So back to that, you know, just how did they practice their religion um, here uh, in the territory? Or, and, yeah, and, absolutely. I was interested in their cultural forms of expression here. You know, what, what did they have houses of worship? Did they celebrate openly when they passed on? How did they deal with burial practices and things like that? So I focus in chapter six on that a lot. And I did find uh, a lot extensive celebration of Lunar New Year in the January, February time period. Very important cultural tradition, religious tradition for the Chinese, especially I think so far from home and divorced from family members by that distance. They felt a cultural continuity by being able to celebrate these 
very important traditions with their comrades who were here, whether there was, you know, 800 of them in Butte celebrating Lunar New Year or two over in Neihart, Montana, celebrating Lunar New Year. It was noted in uh, non-Chinese newspapers, the firecrackers, the feasts, the visiting and things like that. But I think it would have been at times difficult for them to celebrate these traditions and and culture and, and, and rituals because it brought them to the attention of non-Chinese forces and anti-Chinese forces at times. So it was a, a balancing act of how openly do you celebrate uh, when it might result in violence from the non-Chinese neighbors in the region, right? One thing that I thought was most interesting is Montana newspapers reported extensively about burial practices. They were fascinated with Chinese funerals. And so they would report about the, you know, the, the feasts, the offerings, the sounds, uh, the procession from Chinatown out to the burying grounds and things like that. So there was a, an extensive amount of non-Chinese reporting on that. And so I thought I would dig deeper. And I thought that was a pretty interesting chapter looking at the cultural traditions of, around death and how they had to adapt. So in the Southern Chinese religious practices, death would have been dealt with in a certain way requiring certain occupations, musicians, a corpse handler, a priest, and things like that. And kind of by definition, those people did not migrate to North America. And so adaptations had to happen here in the American West. What I found is that these adaptations were sometimes not not intentionally secretive, but not known to the people for whom the adaptations applied. So the Chinese here would employ non-Chinese undertakers to dig the grave, to handle the corpse because of Taoist ideas of corpse pollution and who should and shouldn't handle the corpses. And so if the Chinese here could wash their hands of it, so to speak, and have white undertakers do that for them, they were happy to pay for that to be done. Same thing with music, adaptations and how funeral music was performed because there were not Chinese traditional musicians here in the communities. And so they would pay a German American band or an Irish American band to to process with the body to the burying grounds. So I thought that was that was pretty interesting in terms of who dealt with death most here. Uh, even though there were very few Chinese women in Montana, I think they had an oversized role in dealing with the preparation of the body and the funeral um, expression because of that corpse pollution the men ritually speaking were less likely less willing to take on that corpse pollution and you got to understand a little bit about Taoism, feng shui yin and yang but there was an idea that if you handled the corpse you'd become ritually impure um, especially if you were a man and, and in southern chinese beliefs of the area that these chinese came from there was the idea that if you touched a corpse seven, corpse seven times you could become ritually impure and so there were newspaper accounts that the non-Chinese people didn't necessarily understand this. So they saw the Chinese men aloof and seemingly kind of cold to what was going on, whereas the Chinese women took a leading role in preparing the body, in conducting their ritual ceremonies. I think because it was understood that for them to undertake uh, corpse pollution was less serious than for a man to. So we've got some gendered aspects going on there, some adaptations. But then, like you mentioned, in terms of the elite, um, kind of dealings with death, the idea was that they didn't want their bones to reside forever outside of China. If they would be properly venerated by ancestors, they could be happy in the next life and they could rain uh, blessings upon those in the present life. And so for elite diplomats and merchants and things like that who died outside of China or even within China, their bones would be exhumed and buried again for a second burial um, in a place with proper, proper feng shui where descendants could venerate the ancestors. But across North America, that actually began to adapt for common workers, railroad workers, laundry workers, restaurant workers, where that benefit was extended to them as well. And so non-Chinese newspapers took careful account of the exhumation of Chinese bones to be cleaned, ritually prepared, and sent back for reburial in southern China. The non-Chinese newspapers were fascinated about that. But also that could bring some violence and some uh, antagonism against the Chinese if they were to celebrate and take part in rituals that seemed so foreign to their non-Chinese neighbors. Yeah, no, that, that was, yeah, that was, it, it was just a fascinating read. You know, it was, it was kind of a, you know, yeah, it, it just the way you did it right is it, trying to unpack and, 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 and 
you know, explain, you know, white Montana's reactions and stuff like that. It, it was very well done. It was very well done. Uh, and, and, and a very clear way too. Um, so moving on to the next last chapter here, and I don't know the best way for you to answer this, this question, but can you talk about the changing status of Chinese women in Montana? And I know you, you used a bunch of case studies, you know, to kind of show, you know, that change over time. So I don't know if there's a best way to kind of, to demonstrate, to kind of walk us through, just given how rich those different case studies were. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed that. I, I definitely wanted to focus if I could, on the experiences of Chinese women here in Montana, even though there were so few of them, it was hard. I mean, it's it's hard to find sources on the Chinese experience in the West, the Chinese experience in Montana, and therefore, by definition, with the numbers skewed so much, definitely hard to find the experiences of Chinese women and Chinese American women in Montana. Uh, but we did enough came up that I could focus on some of those case studies, as you mentioned, on their experiences. And, and some are good stories with happy endings and some not so much. One woman in Bozeman, a woman named Na Loy, gives us kind of those hopes and dreams that might end in desperation. So she was brought over to America, to San Francisco. She thought at about the age of seven as basically an indentured servant Usually what was happening in Southern China with families so hard up on their luck, they would sometimes sell daughters out of their family situation. So one less mouth to feed. And and Naloy probably came to America at the age of seven in that role, possibly as an indentured servant, possibly eventually serving as a prostitute. Now, there were Christian missionaries in the region, the Presbyterian Mission Home out of San Francisco that made... Uh, it a, a special social cause for them to try and extricate Chinese girls and women from the brothels and prostitution in San Francisco and elsewhere. And Naloi is indeed extricated from that. And she's taken into the Presbyterian Mission Home in California. She's taught English. She's Christianized. She's taught, you know, Victorian standards of sensibilities and, and hard work and housekeeping and things like that. And then what often happened is because there were so few Chinese women Chinese men would contact the mission home to try and find a bride. And that's how Na Loy comes to Montana. So in the 1890s, Tom Singh, a gentleman who lives in Bozeman, who had no marriage prospects, no possibility of bringing in a Chinese bride from afar because he was a worker. Chinese merchants could bring in a wife, but Tom Singh was a, was a laundry worker. He contacts the mission home and they arrange a marriage with Tom Singh and Na Loy. She comes up to Bozeman, and um, it seems like things are going pretty well. Unfortunately, it was likely that she was promised to another Chinese man, a more powerful Chinese man, who wanted to lay his claim to Na Loy. And so unfortunately for the family, Tom Singh is assassinated by a Chinese hatchet man. Okay, And so they he, he kills Tom Singh probably because Na Loy was either lost revenue from the tongs for prostitution or had been promised in marriage to another stronger Chinese man. They catch the the assassin Lu Sing, no relation to Tom Singh, of course, and imprison him in the Bozeman jail. Unfortunately for the family, it goes from bad to worse. Na Loy was found to have not registered with that 1892 Gary Act. She didn't have the proper certificates. She hadn't done the proper things to come into the nation. Of course, we know she was brought over against her will at the age of seven. So how could she have? But government officials had very little sympathy for her. And so Naloy is thrown into the Bozeman City Jail next to the man who killed her husband. And this is just kind of, you can't make this up. The desperation, the attempt to try and form a family in these dire circumstances. Na Loy has a lot of supporters around the state. They write letters. They try and advocate for her. She was a cause celeb across the state because she spoke English. She was Christian. She seemed to have transitioned into American sensibilities. Government officials had no sympathy. And in 1908, Na Loy was deported. We have no idea what happens to her after she'd been sent back to China, a nation she hadn't been to since seven years old, and so much had happened to her since that time period. So that was one of those case studies of just the striving to try and form families, form connections. Sometimes it it went well for Na Loy and Tom Singh. It did not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was pretty harrowing. Um, so so last um, last chapter here, uh, last question. Um, 
So what did China's migration look like during the Cold War period? And and before I answer, this is actually the one I found the most interesting given my job, <laughs> um, you know, at an at a, at a ICBM um, missile wing. Um, but yeah, so, so what did that look like during the Cold War period? You know, and of course, this, after, this goes after uh, China, the Civil War, uh, in terms of the Communist Party. So. Yeah, I was excited to extend that coverage again, because oftentimes the telling of the Chinese in the American West stops around 1910, maybe. Um, and to be able to extend it into the 1950s, I was excited by that. And that was possible because of the second collection of letters that we translated from this group of brothers. And so one of the brothers came to Butte at age 14. He gets in recognized as an American citizen through a number of very complicated legal statuses at the time, but he makes a life for himself as a laundry worker in Butte. Okay. Um, in Butte, now, you know, your Montana history, Butte's a, a mining town. It's the richest hill on earth, copper mining, things like that. And we tend to think, well, the Chinese were in the West because of mining, not in Butte. In Butte, the Chinese had been prohibited from working in the underground mines for 60 years. Okay, so he works as a laundry worker. Eventually, though, this gentleman is the first person of Chinese ethnicity to work in the underground mines in Butte when he gets a job at the Mountain Con Mine in 1940, probably because of the ramp up uh, of war across the nation. So there's an interesting kind of labor and mining aspect there. But what I thought was more intriguing from a family and Cold War sense is his brother is stuck in southern China. And the gentleman in Butte is desperately trying to get his brother out of war-torn southern China to safety with him in Montana. Now, when I say war-torn, it was the Chinese Civil War in the 1930s, interrupted by the Japanese invasion. When the Japanese are defeated, then the Chinese Civil War resumes. And so war was ravaging this area. The gentleman in Butte, his name is Wing Hong Hum, and his brother is Wing Goon Hum. And so Wing Hong is desperately trying to get Wing Goon to join him in Montana. Chinese exclusion should be over. 1943 with the Magnuson Act, it had been ended. But to be honest, the Red Scare and the Cold War had reasserted Chinese exclusion in all but name because of a fear of Chinese communist infiltration. And so that complicated things. And there's 250 letters from these brothers going back and forth, pleading with government officials, answering every request of government officials to try and smooth Wing Goon's entry into America. If I could, I'd like to read from the letters a bit to just give you a sense of what the translation accomplished and the the difficulty that these brothers went through. So this begins in July 1949, and these letters will go through 1958. And so in July 49, Wing Goon writes from Hong Kong, I am now in Hong Kong going through the process of applying to go to the U.S., All the formalities should be completed within a short period of time. When you see this letter, please arrange a passport so that I can start working on it. Best wishes, younger brother Wing Goon. Very optimistic, right? By November of that same year, I would like to know the status of my application. Is it proceeding? Please be honest with me and let me know if I've done anything wrong. So he begins to get a sense that things are beginning to change. By April of 1950, and of course we know the Korean War and the increasing tensions in Asia with the Cold War are complicating things. Wing Goon writes, If the passport application is successful, please send it to me immediately so that I may proceed. Right now, the U.S.-Soviet standoff is at a deadlock. At any provocation, war might begin. Please, brother. Send it quickly so that obstacles can be avoided. By August of 53, Wing Goon is still stranded in Hong Kong, and he's pleading with his brother in Butte by this point in time. I beg you to find a powerful Westerner and ask him to be the guarantor of my documents. Please ask the Westerner with his reputation and authority to write a request to the Department of State to accept my application to go to America. Brother, I beg you. I am in a dire situation in Hong Kong. My present chance is slim. Four years after that, so now we're into 1957, my humble brother, you are away from home but are lucky and healthy, holding stable work and earning well. Your brother here is still safe, luckily. From last August, when I went to the U.S. consulate to give the materials and wait for the investigating process for approval to come to America, I have heard nothing. I really don't know the reason. This makes me feeling have the feeling of waiting eagerly without a clear target. There are several countrymen like me. None got the letter or notice. Dear brother, I hope you can instruct the office as fast as possible to help me get the chance to go to America. I'm deeply thankful for all the efforts you've made and the precious time you spend. Later, when we meet again in America, I will thank you directly. Unfortunately, they never meet again. 
they're never reunited. His paperwork, his pleading to try and come to America met obstacles at every uh, turn because of the Cold War reassertion of Chinese exclusion in all but name. Man, <laughs> good old Cold War. I mean, it, it influenced everything and everybody everywhere. And his brother in, in Montana, I mean, he became as Montana as, as you or I, right? We've got pictures of him with his new car and in pride of ownership there. We've got pictures of him fishing with white friends up at Georgetown Lake. We've got pictures of him hunting deer and antelope, you know. The, the claim from anti-Chinese forces in the 1950s was that these Chinese in America refuse to assimilate. They, 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 they keep their Chineseness too much. They don't become American. Wing Hong Hum in Butte became not only fully American, he became f- fully Butte. He joined the labor union, worked in the mines, did everything that you would expect uh, of somebody who's integrated into this society, yet his brother was never given the chance. Yeah. So, so for those letters, I'm assuming that those were letters that, that his brother in Butte collected and held on to. So we don't, we don't know what the brother wrote back, do we? No, we, we don't have the other half of things. Uh, but then the brother in Butte was called to Seattle so often to try and testify on his brother's behalf that eventually by 1958, he relocates to Seattle. I don't know if he knew that that was going to be per- permanent, but that's the moment that he left all the letters behind, moves to Seattle, partially because of economic changes and copper prices in Butte and things like that. But then when he moves to Seattle to fully advocate for his brother's case there closer to, you know, powerful government officials. Uh, Those letters were left behind again, rediscovered in the 1980s, but only translated thoroughly for the first time in this project. Wow. Well, that's something else. That's a heck of a story. Um, Okay. So, so let's, let's wrap this thing up here. So um, how can this book help readers uh, better understand the American West? You know, I think people who are knowledgeable about the West know that there was an Asian presence, there's a Japanese presence, a Chinese presence. But I think this book hopefully gives identity and agency and recognition to the Chinese in Montana and possibly more broadly, showing them as empowered, as active, as intelligent, as collaborative by mining their hopes, their dreams, their obstacles, their successes, their failures. We can give them back their identity and their dignity far more than they were rendered on that 1870 census as anonymous quote, China man or China woman. We can give them their identity, their dignity, their culture, and show how nobly they fought for the causes they believed in and that they made Montana in many ways. And through their experiences here actually even influenced China uh, in important ways as well. And I, and I was sitting here thinking too, like as you're talking, that I think this this book actually provides a pretty good um, kind of how to 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 to, to recover, um, you know, people's stories that maybe didn't leave much of a paper trail, um, uh, or that were you know kind of dismissed as quote unquote you know Chinaman or whatever might be uh, a kind of a slur for somebody else uh, throughout the West you know, in, in a way to kind of to, to look for and mine and dig and, and to tell those different stories. So, so hopefully somebody, there's an enterprise and graduate student somewhere that'll take up, uh, take up that challenge later on down the road. Um, so last question, uh, what's, what's next for you? What, if anything, are you working on? I'm always working. I'm always working, you know. Uh, so, but in terms of these projects, there's a couple of things that didn't fit well into the manuscript of this book that I call a manuscripts. So now I'm cleaning up those scraps, turning them into articles. I've got one that's coming out soon with Montana, the magazine of Western history on this fascinating encounter in Butte where this one constable stood off a mob of 216 anti-Chinese forces trying to do violence to these 40s Chinese woodchoppers and kind of the ins and outs of that. But possibly the most exciting next step is to continue this theme of this book through the physical remainders of the Chinese presence in Montana. Most Chinatowns across Montana don't exist anymore. Butte is an exception with a couple of brick and mortar buildings that still stand to this day. But what I found is four cemeteries across the state have Chinese headstones uh, 
And so we've got an ongoing project to try and translate these headstones, identify the individuals commemorated there, and possibly, fingers crossed, try and connect the people who are commemorated on these Chinese headstones in Bozeman and Butte and Billings and Helena, and possibly connect them back with extended family members in southern China. So that's a very exciting project funded by the Montana History Foundation, and we're, we're doing that as we go. And then in my primary work, I work with K-12 educators, social studies teachers. So I've got a couple of teacher training institutes coming up uh, to try and help Montana educators integrate this story of the Chinese presence in Montana into their curriculum. And, and, and on that last point, I'm, I'm happy to hear, you know, I got uh, my my niece and nephews are up here, um, two in high school, one in middle school. Um, and, and I pay close attention to what they're learning in their history classes. Surprise, surprise. Um, so, so I think anything that can help um, those those teachers kind of either either tell a, a fuller story, uh, tell a different story, um, and things like that. I'm I'm, I'm anxious to see if that uh, what kind of fruits that uh, that'll bear uh, as as teachers get in there to to, to yeah. Take. And, and both the cemetery project and the teacher institutes, if you'd like more information on that, my website is bigskychinese.com. So if you're a Montana educator or you know a Montana educator who wants to get in touch to try and come to some of these teacher training workshops, bigskychinese.com is the place to go. Okay. Well, sounds good. Well, Mark, I enjoyed it. It was a fascinating discussion. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Troy.